Good morning. Good morning, my friends. It's right around, you know, 9 a.m., you know, Mountain Standard Time here in Utah. Yes, indeed, it's Wednesday, January the 12th, 2022, in the time of Bo Blimtock. Here in Utah, the sun's been up for a while. The cows have made it to the mountainside to graze upon the bones of all the dead, scrumbly folk coming from the lost territories to the east. Yes, the cattle are back at work, digging ditches. The chickens have come home to roost. They're laying their eggs, the stinky, stinky eggs. I've got a good friend on again for this podcast, my good friend Jim, Jim Davidson. If you go to Planetary Jim on Twitter, you can exchange thoughts with him. You can talk to him about the future. You can say, hey Jim, where have you been living this time of Bo Blimtock? He'll tell you about the Sky Sparrow. He'll tell you about the hot air balloon. He'll tell you about his seven hooker wives. All of them living in Splinkton. Yeah, we're going to talk about gearing back. Now, what does that mean? Well, we all know gearing up is, you know, gearing up, gearing up for some big thingy. But gearing back, what does that mean? Well, I've talked about this before, but... I'll tell you something. A lot of the really cool technology, uh, especially computer technology, is captured by the deep state. Um, AMD, Intel, everybody that makes a CPU or makes memory is reporting to some secret agency. Long before you ever buy that computer, those manufacturers are serving the interests of their primary customer, the state. So when people say things like, well, you know, can't we just mine Bitcoin and do this? Well, one technology you don't control, Mr. and Mrs. Bitcoin anarchist, is you don't control CPU manufacturing. And you can't 3D print that yet. Yet, maybe sometime in the future we'll be able to 3D print CPUs and memory. But to my knowledge, that's not a technology that ordinary people have access to. I'm not even sure if any motherfucker has tried to 3D print a transistor yet. And and just to get to the 1950s and 60s, you'd have to do that. You know, assuming somebody could. Again, it's more than just 
printing a piece of plastic with three little metal leads. There is a science of semiconduction that goes into a transistor, into a diode, that you have to understand. You have to be able to get the materials to make a transistor. And this is going to be one of those subjects that Jim and I delve into today, and that is, how would you do that? The reality is, unless you stockpile a lot of computers and technology and protect them someplace, and frankly, unless you stockpile Linux distros, because I'd stay away from anything Windows related, unless you have the right type of operating systems and equipment and power supplies, you're going to be dead in the water if you expect the other kind of deep state thingy, the power grid, to keep working. Much of the high technology in this country is captured. Okay. The other thing is this. Since, you know, since World War II, we've been mostly polishing candles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The turbojet's gotten better, but it's still a turbojet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got computers, but it's mostly been miniaturization that's been the revolution. In terms of internal combustion, been there, done that, yeah, you can add a CD player. But that doesn't really change the fact that it's still a fucking candle. It's not a light bulb. When my dad was um, cashiered out of the Navy, I guess, or he left the Navy after World War II, he would read Popular Mechanics. And, they, and, and Popular Mechanics would have told him that one day very soon, everybody will have their own private helicopter. Because my dad used to talk about that growing up, like we were all going to have our own helicopter. I don't really think my dad expected us to be polishing candles for 50, 60 years. But that's what we did. We polished a bunch of candles, most of which the Nazis gave us. Those rockets, they're vastly improved. Vastly improved candles. Yeah, it's cool. Elon Musk can land his fucking rockets on some platform. Not at all CGI. But still, it's still a chemical rocket. It's still using, let's put a, you know, a firecracker under the can technology. It's still the fucking candle. And so... When we talk about gearing back, we have to accept something. That there's a lot of high technology that's either been kept from us or kept under control. Um, CPU manufacturing is kept under control. But there could be other technology that's simply kept from us. Nuclear energy production, production, excuse me, nuclear energy production is kept under control. We don't really know what a private market, private sector would do with nuclear materials because the entire industry is a product of the state. So when we come to grips with where are we going to go with all this technology, I think we have to separate out two groups of technology. Group A is the high tech and you don't get to know. And I think we have to kind of like live with the fact that we may, we may not have that for a while, okay? Group B is stuff that we can, in fact, do something about. For example, even though uh, you need a really high-tech refinery to get all the little pieces out of a barrel of oil that you want, if all you want is fuel, there are basic approaches to fractionating oil 
that will allow you to produce fuel. And it's well within the reach of people, for example, in a town like where I live, which has the oil. You know, we have oil fields just outside of town. And so if some smart folks in this town wanted to refine fuel, chances are they could. Now, they probably couldn't refine everything you get out of a barrel of oil, but could they get out the fuel and the lubricants? Probably. And that's pretty much a good start. So there are things that people could do. And certainly steam power, if we had to go that route, is within the realm of possibility. And considering the first turbine engines were built, you know, in the 19th century, I think we could probably build turbine engines also. Basic steam turbines, if not exactly like Turbinia from the 1890s, and you can look that up. Anywho, like I said, in a few minutes, we're going to have our friend, on, our, our friend Jim on, and we'll talk to him, and I need to get set up for that, but, well, let's, let's get going. So here is my good friend, Jim Davidson. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing great, Dan. How have you been? Oh, it's just peachy. Well, you know, you don't get the uh, apocalyptic aftermath of a pandemic all that often. So here we are. No, no. In fact, I've been thinking about this recently. The last two years reminds me of those two weeks after 9-11, except for it's lasted a couple years. Well, and I think that's fair, but I think it's also important to remember that 9-11 is still with us. All of the craziness at the airport has just gotten crazier. I mean, they're even talking about not letting people travel domestically without proof of some sort of vaccine. And that seems like journey. Yeah, that's just weird. So today we're talking about gearing back, and I gave the listeners a kind of general description of what that means, but why don't you, to start out with, give me your sense of what do you think gearing back is? Well, gearing back comes up in a book, uh, 1632, by a fellow named Eric Flint, and it comes out right at the uh, end of the last millennium, so the year 2000. And everybody's like, but Jim, the year 2000 is part of this millennium. No, that's not how it works. We started it with the year one. We ended it with the year 2000. Anyway, the point is, is that the book's pretty good about this concept because it's set in a very strange, you know, world where a sculpture of, of a, of a multidimensional being has shed part of itself and created a, a rotating ring that's moving through time and space, which hits uh, a town called Grantville, West Virginia, and carries it into the past, and it ends up in the Thuringian Vault in Germany in the year 1631. <gasps> and they have, like 3,000 people, they have a little power plant, they have their own little phone um, network, have a bunch of stuff that you would have at the end of the 20th century, the end of the second millennium. Anyway, they um, they are aware now after a, a, a few interesting early episodes of, of, the, of, the, of, of the book, they become aware that they've been cast into the past and they begin realizing that they don't have enough supplies in town and enough of the stuff they would need 
to make a technological civilization last. They know that they're going to fall back. And they begin to gear up for that with the understanding that they can use the tools and systems they brought with them from the future to make some stuff like, I don't know, micrometers, for example. Because there's not a micrometer to be found in Germany or in all of Europe in 1631, 1632, as the novel progresses, you know, time goes on. And it's, it's quite a series. There's, there's, there's a whole bunch of these. If, if people are interested, Eric uh, opened it up to other authors and a bunch of other authors contributed. So you can find, I think the last one I read was something like 1637. And, uh, they're pretty good novels, but uh, there's also the whole question of, you know, um, well, for instance, how do you make a micrometer? Uh, you take some steel and you take some gears and you, you know, make it so that you can measure the interior or the exterior, you know, um, of a pipe, say. But that's a precision tool. It's not just, you know, the way you described it makes some steel and gears, but... That's well, it is a precision tool. It is, it's a very, very precise tool. A micrometer implies a micrometer, which is less than a millimeter, right? Yeah. So a millimeter is a thousandth of a meter, so a, mil, a micrometer would be a millionth of a meter. And even if it's you know in inches, I don't care how your system of measurement is, I'm actually very, you know, um, happy to see people using any system of measurement as long as they're able to measure things. Because we can always convert later if we switch from one system to another. Um, that's just a little math. And it's mostly arithmetic, so that's easy easy math. It's not like partial differential equations or something. So, um, yeah, so, so it is a precision tool, and it's highly precise. And making more than one of them, you would want them all to be, uh, you know, precise in exactly the same ma manner. And you've got the question of, you know, error bars. Uh, how, 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 you know, it's 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 three micrometers to within plus or minus a tenth of a micrometer. Say, I don't know, but you have to have some idea of how accurate your instrument is. Every instrument, every measuring device is, is most accurate at the middle of its scale, which is why, you know, when you jump on the, uh, on the, on the spring scale, you get a weight that's close to what you actually weigh. But when you put something small on it, like a box, it only weighs a pound. It doesn't quite move the thing. It doesn't even look like it moved at all. Why isn't it? Well, because it, it's only really accurate at the center of its range, not at the extremes. <laughs> So how do you do that? How do you make things like that? Um, and given that we know that we can just look, why well, you can just look it up on Wikipedia? Uh, yeah, and what are we going to do after an EMP takes out uh, our ability to use the Internet or our ability to uh, use the Internet is, is frosted by something like uh, coronal mass ejection? Well, then what do you do? How are you going to have that information then? Maybe you should, since you, since you know all about how to do all of these things because you know how to do searches on the Internet, maybe you should search up some of these topics and just print out copies of what you learn. That might be good because then you'd have at least printouts. You know, you can make a whole notebook 
You can make several notebooks. Well, frankly, with the knowledge base that's available, you could make millions of notebooks if you had the paper yeah. and the notebooks. Uh, you know. And the question is, what do you actually need for a 19th century level of comfort? I mean, what would that include? That would include things like hot and cold running water. It would include, you know, towards the end of the 19th century, you'd have indoor plumbing. So you need to know how to make some plumbing here. Uh, you need to know how to pump water. Uh, they had oil. They began to distill it into things like gasoline and kerosene. So you'd have to have some, you know, fractional distillation systems. But what else? I mean, you have uh, the whole industrial chemical system. Uh, nitric acid is one of those basic building blocks. Um, you know, what about uh, chlorine bleach? People want to have that to, to, you know, tidy up around the house. And it's probably mostly innocuous. I mean, people say, well, but that's chemicals. You shouldn't use chemicals. You should, you're in the environment, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, but chlorine is in the environment. If you see a green plant, you're looking at chlorophyll. Oh, what's the molecule in, in chlorophyll? Well, it's some sort of carbon and chlorine. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, what do we need to be doing now with the understanding that civilization may be collapsing around our ears in a few, I don't know, weeks, months, years. What do you think? How long do we have, Dan? I mean, you know my position. Best case scenario, we're living through the collapse of the U.S. dollar empire. Best case scenario. And, and it gets a little worse if that is the collapse of a lot of complexity that nobody can keep up. But... Any day it could happen. I mean, I call it sudden death overtime because that's what it feels like right now. Um, so, who knows? It it does. It feels like we're at a, a you know critical juncture, and it feels like there are other people who have some sense of what they expect. You know, whether this is um, someone someone recently described this as a soft war, where China is actually at war with the United States, and and they. You know, China's just a perfectly reasonable candidate. It could be anybody. It could be Davos is at war with the United States. They, they declared war on us at the Bilderberg session some decades back. But um, against the American people, anyway. But, you know, if it's a war, um, wars, wars tend to heat up at some point. And, um, you know, uh, the Great Atomic Aftermath and Fresh Fruit Festival would be uh, a different phase in human activity than, than what we're seeing right now. So I think it's rational to at least be thoughtful about what to be prepared for. Well, and that's the problem is that all I can tell people is all I can do is give people analogies because I don't know that we know the exact form. Like I would tell you that we feel like we knew where we, where we were going on the way up, but that wasn't entirely the truth. If you go back to the 1750s, we didn't really know every step along the way that would get us to where we're at at this point, at this point in history. And, and we definitely are going to have less information on the other side going down. And so my view is it's really a question of those drop-offs. You know, I've used it as an example. Some of these drop-offs might only be 5 or 10 feet, but you won't see them. It's dark out. You're going down a mountain. You're not going to see them. Some could be bigger. And, you know, you and I talked about it last night. It really depends upon how, how far you fall and how good you are at falling. 
and a lot of people are just not really prepared for that. Um, well, right, and it's 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 I think even more you know weird terrain in the sense of you know you you might have a sense of of what the mountain is like and what mountains are like generally, and you might be able to work your way down in the dark um, with whatever little lights you, you're able to you know bring to bear on it. But I think we're more likely on a, a uh, you know a tundra or a a slope of, of snow and ice, and we're in the mountains, and there's glaciers and there's crevasses, and you could be walking across what seems to be a perfectly flat level snowfield, but it's actually a snow bridge. Yeah. And your weight is enough to collapse that, and suddenly you plunge. And do you plunge? You know, five, ten feet. Do you plunge twenty feet? Do you plunge eighty feet or more? And if you're roped together, the people behind you, if you're the lead guy and, and you are the one who causes the, the collapse, you know, the people behind you can, can help by, you know, hauling on that rope, belaying you from your fall, slowing your fall, and then bringing you back up. But what if you're, you know, you're the lead guy and you get across and then, you know, two people cross too close together and suddenly the middle of the rope, you know, there's a collapse and uh, people on both ends suddenly need to help. And what if the guy out front is alone and, you know, and he's being dragged in, yeah. it gets, it gets to be kind of freaky on that kind of terrain. And all I'm saying is, is that I don't think we're in a situation where we have as much knowledge about, well, how are things really? Uh, it, it might not be a mountain. It might be an ice field. It could be. I just don't really know. All I know is this. The people in the city are not good buddies to have on the rope. A lot of the people in the city are, you know, in a lot of danger. Yeah, they're they're in a very fragile environment, and um, we talked about this, I think, last week about you know um, Revelation eighteen about the cities being pretty much all Greater Babylon. Well, I mean, to keep with your analogy, dude. Um, I'd say a lot of people in cities are standing on hidden crevasses on ice bridges and they're jumping up and down and they think they can do that and there will be no consequences. Right. And, and we saw that uh, in May of 2020. We saw people burning their cities and burning police precinct buildings. And I, you know, I'm not a fan of the police. I'm not an enthusiast of you know, brutal dictatorship or police states. And I know that you have to have a police force to enforce police state stuff. So, you know, I, I, I do not lament people protesting against the police, not even for a minute, but I think, you know, burning down a city because you're upset about somebody being killed by a cop yeah. might not be, you know, quite the right thing to do. Well, what I saw in Seattle was not in a grassroots thing. What I saw in Seattle would be what the FBI was doing in the 60s with Operation Chaos. I saw Seattle police ushering protesters. I saw Seattle employees basically providing logistical support. So uh, it was it was its own kind of little petty psyop. You know, I don't know what was happening in other cities. All I can report is is that the Guardian, for example, definitely lied. And so other newspapers lied about what was going on there. I have no doubt 
that Ian Miles Wrong and Andy No Clue lied because I compare my notes and my videos against theirs. So, dude, I, I don't know that, in, at least in Seattle, any of that was like spontaneous. I think a lot of it was basically orchestrated. Right, and so one of the problems with our situation that we find ourselves in is that we don't know. For a while, it seemed like some of this was planned to um, bolster the Democrats in the election. And one of the one of the things that a lot of Republicans have suggested is that the uh, the pandemic was planned and released so that they could have an excuse to push for a lot of mail-in ballots and thereby steal the election. You know, like, suddenly, I mean, but isn't that like stealing the title to the World Wrestling Federation? It is to you and me, but it's apparently important to some people. Well, all I, mean, I can tell you is... Hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. are spent on these campaigns. I know, every, dude. I know, but what I told you I stick with from the spring of 2020, dude, I, it, it, it was the halftime show. Or at least that's what they thought. My theory is they didn't expect any of this to continue into 2021. Um, but definitely... Well, I wouldn't have minded if it had all gone away, and then we could have said, well, that was a crazy political year. Yeah. But it didn't. It hasn't gone away. Because it's I useful. It's they useful. They've got a taste of power. Dude, dude from, okay, I see it from a PSYOP perspective. All of these traumas are highly useful to the people manipulating us. Highly yes. useful. Um, yes, they are. And so that's the other thing about what you're saying is, is that people who are living in cities right now don't know how they will be um, conserved or uh, expended as useful elements to... And, uh, someone else's agenda. Everyone wants to go through life. I mean, you know, you and I have uh, libertarian perspectives in the sense that we're not authoritarian. So our basic goal in life is to be left alone and to get along and to have interesting projects to work on. And, you know, anybody in a big city right now who has that ambition should probably be selling his home and getting out into the countryside, up into the hills, because someone else has an agenda. Someone else may have already scoped out what your home is like, and in a moment of chaos, they're going to come in and put, you know, two in the chest, one in the head, and they're going to take your stuff. I mean, can I, can I ask you a question, though, focusing this on gearing back? Because this is a good conversation we're having. But yes. don't you think, and hasn't this been said by many people, one of the biggest things that impacts you during a, a major crisis at first is the inability to change the way you look at the world. Like it is the mind in this case is the mind killer because a lot of people, dude, in the cities, they're not seeing the snowy adventure movie that you and I are talking about where things could get treacherous. They're watching the, the virus movie and the hate Russia movie and the Trump is evil movie, even though the election's been over for a bit. They're watching the wrong fucking movie, in a way, if you want to think of it that way. And because they are, they're basically heading in the wrong direction. Yes, and I think that that's, that's, that's a real problem for people everywhere, is that um, they, don't have a good, uh, they don't have a strong sense of what to expect, and so they are um, grasping at straws, and they're, you know... They're in the plane that it's falling, and they know there's a parachute in here somewhere, 
And while they're trying to navigate from one place in the plane to another, they're learning all sorts of zero gravity skill. Yeah. I mean, I got to <laughs> tell you, man. dude. And at the same time, they're, you know, they're checking out every backpack thinking that it's, uh, It might be the parachute. Jim, if it were people in Seattle on an airplane, as it was going down on fire and people are screaming, people in seats would be trying to sell each other each other's seats. All the way down. I think so. I think there are people like that. No, and, it's a uh, lot of people like that, dude. They, they sell, they're selling seats on a sinking ship on a crashing airplane. That's what they'll do right up until the end because they don't believe it's crashing. They don't. What you and I experience as the acceleration towards the ground, they're interpreting as an acceleration upwards. Yes. And so let's get back to the micrometer for a second, because yeah. I think that's an interesting example. It's a precision tool, and it's made out of metal. But that implies a whole level of industry, right? Because you have to have machines to cut metal, and you have to have machines to measure the accuracy of those cuts and and micrometers often have a little you know uh, a gear that lets you extend and shorten the 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 pincers so that you you can have you know exact measurement of what it is you're looking at um so that implies a whole level of skill i mean we 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 we, we've 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 mentioned in the past um several years that we've had these conversations, um, things like the uh, uh, Archimedes making the Antikythera mechanism. Yep. And it's, it, the Antikythera mechanism definitely had some really cool triangular-shaped gears on those cogs. But at the time, we don't have a lot of other technology that, that has that same sort of, 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 of toothy shape. And if there were gears, they might have been, you know, uh, square uh, <clears throat> at the tips rather than, than uh, pointy. And they would mesh differently, and you would get different results. And so somebody really clever, one of the reasons the Archimedes is nominated, is just, you know, documented to have been really clever, um, made all of that. But even just making the metal. I mean, some of the metals in, in tools are not just iron, and they're not just carbon iron. So, you know, you take the Bessemer process and you use coal or some sort of charcoal, some source of carbon, and you get carbon steel. Great. But what about nickel? Nickel's really expensive right now because of all of this interest in, in solar power systems and battery systems. Nickel and chromium, how do you get them? You know, are they around? Are there places out here in middle America where you can just go to the ground and, and dig up some nickel ore? No. I don't know, probably. A lot of them, well, maybe, but a lot of them, we're, we're at the point now with a lot of mining where you're really just strip mining large spaces of ground and you're sifting out very small amounts per cubic meter of materials, whether it's gold, silver, copper. You know, I'm assuming nickel might be one of those too that shows up. It's like there isn't really an easy place to just just go get raw ore, is what I would say. Um, I think a lot of the easy places have already been used up in the 19th and 20th centuries, but you know they do they do have uh, uh, 
you know, explorers, exploration companies that go and look for oil and natural gas and gold and silver and other metals. It is, and but they, can I pause you for a second? The ground. Jim, can I but pause you for a second? Drilling into the ground requires yeah. a very complicated technology. It's very high tech at this point. It is. Mining is extremely high tech. In fact, mining is so high tech and so expensive. And again, I got this from an insider that they really can't repair things like they used to. I mean, they have to move, to begin with, they have to move massive amounts of, of earth. And that sounds trivial, but whether you're talking about today or 100 years ago, 100 years ago, they had giant steam shovels where you could put a person's house into the shovel and they would be digging through the earth. Today, they have these gigantic caterpillars and they use explosives. But the point is, just at the mine itself, the level of technology you need and resources to keep things going is extreme. And that doesn't even get you to processing. That just gets you truckloads of crap you take to a processing center. And then it gets even right. more. And if, it's, if it's perspective of gold, it might have 1% gold, mm-hmm. which means you've got you know, 99 tons of crap for every one ton of gold. And, and sometimes the crap is interesting because it has 1% gold, has 5% silver, or some other combination of, of interesting things. I'm not saying that it's all, all wasted, but I am saying that you have to move a lot of stuff and you have to process a lot of stuff. And even just on the exploration side, it can be highly technological. There's a guy I know, uh, John Kingman in Colorado, runs a company called Terragina. And one of the things that, that he was doing was going out to prospective sites and laying out long uh, lines of cable and putting magnetometers in different spots and then electrifying the ground and seeing how it reflected back in terms of conductivity with this massive array of, of sensors. Yep. And, and, and he could say, okay, well, there's your mother load of gold, and over here this is probably silver, and over here this is something else, copper or whatever. And so, you know, that's really cool. But again, how do you make all of that stuff? It's, it's not going to be like going to your Amazon, you know, account and saying, well, I'm going to need this and this and this. No, you're not. You're going to need to make this and this and this. And if you're going to make, you know, if you're going to make a forged hand tool, are you going to forge the steel yourself? Are you going to refine the steel? Are you going to combine it with the other, you know, trace impurities that make it a chromium steel or a nickel steel? I don't know what you're going to have to do. But you, you better be thinking about this stuff now because a lot of that stuff is going to be unobtainium. Oh, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, you we talked about the micrometer. In some of your notes, you mentioned things like anodizing and electroplating. For a micrometer, it, it's more than just the metals you mentioned too. It's coatings, right? It's, it's specialized synthetics and rubbers that might be used as stoppers inside of it to slow it down so it just doesn't spin really fast. There's so many things that go into that micrometer that it's it's hard to imagine like just tomorrow saying to somebody locally, will you build me a bunch of micrometers? I'm not sure that's feasible, you know? Uh, right. Now what we could do is probably what they did for thousands of years and have these kits of standard measures, like standard metal measures. You'd stick it into a tube, it has number six on it, oh, that's number six. There are things you can do in a low-tech way to standardize measurement, but that's a lot more labor-intensive than using a micrometer. I mean, right. 
you know. Right, and and one of the things that, that happened in the late 19th, early 20th century is the standardization of Measures. fasteners. Yeah. You have a fastener that has, uh, you know, how many... When, when I say I want a wood screw that's uh, three inches long, that implies a whole bunch of things. What is the screw head like? Is it a Phillips head or is it a straight head? Or does it have one of these stupid new things that you have to have a special tool? Because <laughs> they don't want people unscrewing things in the bathroom, I guess, or something. I don't know. Uh, but it implies a particular relationship of 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 the um, the number of, of of twists per inch in that screw, right? They, they they if you if you if you lay them side by side, a bunch of 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 screws that are wood screws, well, they they have a pointy tip and they have so many you know threads per inch, and and you're like, okay, so I can I can expect the same sort of result. But, you know, in a, in a handmade universe where everything is, you know, you go to a, a blacksmith and he, 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 he's happy to turn out a lot of nails because he can make a lot of nails that are just alike. But you, you ask him to, you know, turn that into a screw, that's complicated. Yeah. And, and getting every screw just alike is complicated. And it used to be, you know, in the 19th century, every screw was different. and You had to figure out, you know, how to fit them together. Now we have standardized parts, which is great, but who is making them? Some big company, not us. And that gets into the other uh, aspect of this, which is, you know, what if civilization doesn't collapse, Jim and Dan? Maybe you're wrong. Maybe everything's going to be fine. I look around me and I say, everything is not fine, so everything is not going to be fine, but maybe what we're looking at is dollar collapse. Okay. And maybe what we're looking at is the end of a certain level of control over our behavior, which is panicking the people in charge. And so they're wanting to implement a, you know, an annual vaccine update and they're, they're wanting 5G technology to spy on everyone. And I don't know what all the things they want. They want a bunch of stuff. They're crazy. Um, and maybe this is, you know, some sort of desperation play to have everybody fall into line before they lose complete control. Well, so decentralization is actually a goal for a lot of the people in, like, cryptocurrencies. With the understanding that we don't want a central bank and we don't want trusted third parties because we've seen, you know, the results from that are very poor. Yeah, I just don't know what... Dude, I don't... I believe in decentralization. I don't believe in polycentralization. I believe in privacy. I don't believe in forever ledgers, and so okay. I'm not a big right, fan. My, my point is, is that there's, 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 you know, two trillion dollars worth of value market cap, and there's uh, something like you know five hundred billion dollars a day in, in, in transactions in that industry, and it's full of people who talk about decentralization, and yet they go and they get in a car that's made by one of four. Well, actually, one of three American uh, car companies, you know, because Chrysler and AMC got together. And uh, so it's it's a Ford, it's a GM, it's a, uh, it's a Chrysler, or it's a foreign car. And they're even more remote from the, from, from the, you know, the supply chain of that, if it's a Jaguar or a Lamborghini. Tell me how the guy with the Lambo is going to get parts 
keep his Lambo working as things shift to a fully decentralized economy? I don't know. I don't know. But maybe he should be thinking about that because he's got Lambo money. I mean, let's just let's just say that the worst case scenario is the Scrubbly slash global austerity slash the dollar collapse. Okay, the big Scrubbly. Let's just say that's the worst case for anybody who who is dependent upon computer technology at this point. They must understand that CPU manufacturing and memory manufacturing and computer manufacturing for every country on Earth is a deeply connected deep state thing. The primary customer of Intel is not you or I. The primary customer isn't even Apple or some other computer maker or whatever. The primary customer of Intel or AMD or Motorola is the government. And so if, if you really want to be decentralized and free, and I don't want to skip around too much, but I feel like this is related, people who really believe in alternative electronic currencies have to seriously think about breaking free of that monopoly of the high-tech computerization. Right, and, and they, they need to be thinking about how to make something that is an integrated circuit. Because if you look over at Taiwan, which may soon become another part of communist China, uh, um, Taiwan makes a lot of semiconductors. There's some made in, in China itself. There's some made in Japan. And Intel has made some over here. Um, how do we do that? How do we, you know, make the technologies to live without all of these other big corporations that have all of this power and demand all of these things from us? How would we go about making a cell phone? Even a flip phone is pretty complicated technology. How would you go about making a SIM chip? There is something about a company, I think, in Holland, that uh, has made something on the order of 2 billion SIM chips that have all been discovered to have uh, firmware backdoors that the NSA uh, put in there. Yeah. Um, that's kind of cool. And but, at the same time, you know, do I want that in my phone? Not really. No. I mean, the best case scenario for a lot of people, at least for the first few years, in my opinion, is try to run an operating system you can trust and that's not windows and it's not apple and if you don't if you don't really trust the cpus and the memory don't use them for anything that would exploit your situation i mean that's the terrible truth of it if you really wanted to have a digital currency you've got to figure out a way to break out of the digital ghetto but right now i mean just think about a transistor jim just go back to the 1950s and think about making a transistor how many people have even attempted to make their own transistor just using 3D printers? Like, in theory, you could 3D print parts of it. You could certainly get the copper wire. But what about the semiconductor material and the wafers? What about the PNNP materials? Who could do that locally just to make a single transistor? And on an integrated circuit, you've got billions of them. I think even more. They're talking about nanoscale chips which have maybe <laughs> coming to have you know hundreds of billions or even trillions of, of circuits yeah. and and uh, I remember seeing a picture it's in my head right now of um, it was William Shockley who's accredited as one of the inventors of the transistor yeah. and he's carrying this 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 device that looks like a you know, a giant slab of molten metal with something sticking out of it. 
and that was like that was the first transistor. Um, but you know, it's um, it's obviously important to be able to miniaturize these things. <laughs> and uh, you know, I worked for a guy in uh, I want to say it was 1998, um, a guy named uh, Randy Dumsey, who had a company, New Micros Inc., in the Dallas area, and they. Um, Design the circuit boards for a lot of independent computing devices. Um, one of them was a, a sort of personal digital assistant for UPS drivers. And if you remember back in those days, they had a little boxy kind of, it wasn't a laptop, but it had a little screen on it and a place to sign. And they had information would pop up about the address they were to go to, and then they would find their way there. No one really had GPS in those days. So you didn't even know where you were, let alone where you were going, but you, you know, had maps and people could ask directions and they found their way. And then they made the delivery and they, and they it had a scanner so it could scan the UPC code, the um, universal product code, the barcode. And until, you know, and then, and then they carried that back. They didn't have a communications device in the truck. So they carried that back to, at the end of their route, they went back to the, 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 shipping center and uploaded that data well you know it's all much more uh you know cell phone type technology now but at that time that was pretty sophisticated stuff and what were these guys doing in new micros well they would you know they would take a green circuit board material and they would lay out where all of the components went and they would show where you would put the the lines of solder to connect them um, and, uh, you know, eventually they'd have a design for a new version of this thing. And then they'd, they'd send that design to their friends in the Philippines who had a factory where they made them. Um, and they would, you know, stick the resistors and the capacitors and the batteries in different spaces on the circuit board and solder it all together and, and ship back, you know, hundreds of these things to be sold to the customer. Well, how do you make a resistor, Dan? I mean, I know a resistor is composed of essentially a clay-like material that reduces connectivity to a certain number of ohms. So if I have a wire going in and a wire going through and going out, it's going to take some of that energy from the wire and convert it into heat and reduce voltage flow at a certain point. That's, but, how do you, but where do you get the clay from? Um, how do you figure out the proper amounts of clay? Like, even if you could figure out how to make a resistor... How would you make it a standard resistor? Right, and, and the ceramics are actually very complicated these days. You know, back in the 15th, 16th century, ceramic just meant, well, you know, you've got pottery. And if, if your dish happens to have some impurities in the clay, that's no big deal. You're just using it to make a teacup. But today, if you're going to be putting a circuit, you know, you're putting a wire into a piece of ceramic and then a wire out of that same piece of ceramic and that piece of ceramic is designed to let through just so much of the charge and resist anymore. Um, well, it's going to have to be pretty specific materials. It's going it, You can't just use any random hunk of, of clay from a riverside. No, you can't. No. And, and how are you going to measure what 
it, it is. How are you going to measure? Well, this clay is made out of you know you know bentonite and some of these other things. Okay. Um, how do I know? What what kind of measuring devices do I need to be able to make sure that I've got the right kind of clay? I'm not saying that these are impossible technologies. I'm, I'm saying that they're very within the human scale because everything that you see around you is, I think, everything you see around you is made by human beings. If some of it was made with you know information from you know spiritual sources or demonic sources, um, that's you know that's a possibility. But it's still made and understood by human beings who, who make more of them. No, and, that, and, and, the, and the question really is, in these cases, how far backwards would we go? Because we talk about dollar collapse, and if it's just dollar collapse, that's like you know one of those events that's big enough to remember for a century, but it's not necessarily going to set you back 500 years or something. But Well, that's right. And and if it's like the uh, the lesser um, dry ass uh, you know cooling period ending and all of the uh, major ice sheets the Cordilleran your uh, Laurentide and European ice sheets all melting into the sea at the same time over the course of forty days and forty nights it wiped out everything. And if you go back in the literature of the ancient Greeks, they didn't think they were at the pinnacle of their culture. They recognized and knew about and had written documents about an earlier, higher civilization. If you read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, he talks about these, these godlike beings on Mount Olympus, and he describes robots golden girls that dance and little uh, R2-D2 type things that go around and, and serve each of the, uh, the gods on their separate couch. He describes in the Iliad, Achilles' shield is given to him by Athena. And it has motion pictures on it. Yeah. Uh, we, can, we can see those technologies today. We know how to do all of that. But the, the guys in ancient Greece, 1200 BC, they didn't know how that was done, and it was magic to them. It was just the gods have all of these things, and they're miraculous. And I'm not saying that in 1200 BC, when when the Trojan War actually seems to have happened, that, that there were all of these remaining surviving technologies, or that there were godlike beings. I'm not saying that that's, that's part of their story, but he's describing technologies. And we don't have a Hephaestus. We don't have Vulcan to do all of the technological wonders. Um, well, you know, here's because another, that civilization fell. The civilization that they remembered, the Golden Age. They didn't even think of themselves as a Silver Age. They felt that, they, they, that that was also far in the past. The things had fallen from the Golden Age, fallen to the Silver Age, and, and they are in a Bronze Age. Go ahead. Well, no, um, I didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, finish your thought. This is... I did. Okay. Well, another thing, for example, prior to the modern computer age, and I, and I should say there have been devices used for computation for thousands of years. I mean, the abacus is a kind of device that assists in computation. But prior to the electronic age, as we understand it, let's say the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, computation was 
refined into an advanced skill set. It was organizational. You had things like logbooks. You had things like, um, you know, what's your uh, Yeah, but you also had the, the what's my slide rules. The point is, and you had worksheets, and you had people working in buildings doing parts of calculations. And the question I have is, would people even know how to reproduce that? Like if you had to do advanced calculations using a group of people, using basic technology, could you organize people with tools to do those calculations in 2022? I probably could. I happen to have my dad's slide rule. So, uh, you know, I've got a piece of it. I have log tables in the, uh, I think it's the 62nd edition of the Chemical Rubber Handbook. Yeah. So I have a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the, yeah, it is the 62nd edition, a handbook of chemistry and physics, and it has all kinds of things besides just, you know. And now uh, you need to train, table. and now you need to train 100 people to do it. I need to train a lot of people to do the, the pieces of the mathematical construct. And if you, if, you, if you read the book Cryptonomicon, which is a novel by Neil Stevenson, it's set in the 1940s and into the 1990s. And in the 1940s, the guy is, um, the, the protagonist, is trying to figure out what's going on after they recapture um, the, the Manila Harbor and there's this fortress, you know, I forget the name of it, in the middle of the harbor and deep underground in, in one of these uh, places, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a table where a bunch of guys with abacuses were working on a calculation and he wants to understand what's that calculation? What are they doing? And what they're doing, it turns out, is a fairly complicated thing um, to make a pseudo-random number set so that they can do encryption. And they're also doing decryption. And there's like, you know, 20 guys sitting around a table with worksheets, and they're passing the worksheets around, and they're doing the calculations and passing the worksheet on. And that's just to do one decrypt. Yeah. That's a lot of work. I mean, you can see why, you know, Turing and his guys in England automated the, the, the crap out of that with their uh, devices, their electromagnetic, you know, electromechanical devices, I guess you would say. Well, I mean, think about, um, and I think his name was Parsons, but you know the guy that first used a, a steam turbine for marine propulsion back in the 1890s, I think it was? Um, not really, no. Well, there was a date in the 1890s where his boat was the fastest thing on Earth. It, it, was, it uh -huh. was during, I think, one of the Victorian celebrations of the Navy. I forget the year, but it was the 1890s. And the Navy had all these, you know, steam steamboats with pistons and stuff, and they tried to catch him. They couldn't catch him. The Royal Navy couldn't even catch him. He was, it was, the name of the ship was Turbinia, and he was running circles around them, Okay. Could anybody today reproduce what he did in the 1890s? You know, maybe. I maybe. mean, yeah, but um, they would have to have a lot of equipment. And one of the things that's um, true is that a year after a great collapse, a bunch of people can get together and make their equipment work still. But then parts break and more parts break and after five years can we still keep it together are we still going to be able to make turbine engines 
I don't know, but I do know that the whole concept of making everything in giant factories is a broken idea. The idea of having the electric power grid depend upon giant power plants to make everybody's power all the time is a broken concept. It, it's, it, it, it failed winter of 2020. The, 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 the ice storm hits Texas and people are without power for, for days on end. And a lot of those houses down in Texas, I lived in one, are all electric. Yeah. They don't have natural gas. They don't have anything to stay warm while they're without electricity. You know, and so what do you do? You know, do you go buy some solar panels? I have yet to find a home improvement store that was selling solar panels. I think that's that's deliberate. I think that's part of somebody else's plan. But I think it's also kind of disgusting. Um, I was able to find in Walmart some um, uh, very small solar panels that I could use to light up an individual uh, lant lantern, you know, so I could I could charge the battery during the day and and it would it would light the path at night. And um, I was thinking about being able to string a bunch of those together. You know, that's the level of solar power that you can get at a store. And then and then what are you going to do? Buy a, uh, a generator? Okay, so there's gasoline and there's diesel generators. My suggestion to people who are in the market for this stuff is get the diesel because it's probably the case that you can make biodiesel with, you know, the grease from neighborhood restaurants more easily than you're going to be able to refine gasoline. Or neighborhood cats. Well, that's right. Cats are a perfectly good source of grease. They're not good for much else as a food. Uh, predator meat is not, uh, not, not too good. But we can definitely make a little biodiesel out of cats and raccoons and squirrels just toss them in the tank right well that's right and you know um go back up to seattle and get beans and oh boy he's good for a few <laughs> he's good for one a couple days a couple meals and he's over and, and they wouldn't be very good meals but you know <laughs> but the biodiesel you could probably go five miles on that much diesel if you got the right car well, you know, and this is one of the other things about this whole topic that I think is important is, is to recognize how screwed we have been as consumers by this, this, this era of centralization and this regulatory impediments to actually doing new cars. In 1979, which was a, a, a year of an energy crisis when, when prices for fuel were way high, they were over a dollar a gallon. Oh my gosh. And, um, the, the, the Volkswagen had a Rabbit, which was the name of the model of car, and it was the diesel Rabbit got 60 miles to the gallon. 60 miles to the gallon. Yep. I would love to have, uh, you know, 60 miles to the gallon in my RAV4. It doesn't. It gets, currently, it gets about 20 miles to the you, gallon. You know the, you know the truck that my friend here uses for firewood is a diesel <sighs> truck. Uh, it's a really old one. And even though it's really old, it gets really good mileage. Like it just for it's what it makes it affordable to go up in the mountains and get the wood, because it just doesn't use that much diesel. It, I don't know. My guess is that it probably doesn't have an EGR valve. 
And I know a guy, Serge Monross, out in Huntington Beach, California, who showed me all of the code in his EGR valves that he took off of various sizes of trucks and cars. And he says, look, I reprogrammed it so that it actually optimizes fuel efficiency. I was like, what? It's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's designed to make it much less fuel efficient. The, the fuel injectors spray the wrong amount of fuel and the timing is wrong. And, and if you do it this way, you get an optimal flow. And I was like, cool. So why do they do it the other way? Well, because the EPA doesn't want them to have more than 35 miles to the gallon. This was back in 20, December of 2016 was when I was out there. Um, you know, the EPA wants to limit the fuel efficiency because the car companies have regulatory capture and they don't want to have to compete. Yeah. When I was in high school, and I've told this story before, so, you know, we can go pretty quickly through it. When I was high, high school, there were a group of guys who loved to work on cars and they took auto shop and they knew everything about the cars. And there were probably 40 of them. And if you took the top 10 of those guys and had somebody take apart every car in the student and faculty lot and throw all the parts on the football field, and you sent those 10 guys in with their tools, they would separate on all of the, the parts, they would build all of the cars back, and they would tune them, and they would run better when they drove off the field than before, and there would be no extra parts because those guys knew their stuff. And they happen to be guys, I, you know, I don't actually care about whether or not women can do it today. I'm sure they can. That's not my point. My point is, is that uh, there were 40 car guys in my graduating class of about 444. And I thought about it a little bit more. I'm like, well, you know, there's 3.8 million for every um, age group. Uh, there were 70 million uh, children under 18 or under. So, you know, you divide that by 18 and you get 3.8 million. And then you say, well, 10% of those people, 380,000. And then you say, okay, nonsense. Only 200,000 of those people actually were really competent nationwide. Every year, America was graduating from its high schools in the, in the 70s and 80s, 200,000 people who knew how to work on cars and could do great things with them with the tools that they had available to them and, and there were no integrated circuits in those cars there were no computers screwing everything up when the EMP hit so why were there only four car companies at the time well I'll tell you why and 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 uh, Elon Musk can tell you why but when when he set about to start Tesla which was not going to compete directly in any of the segments that the, the big car companies care about. It was going to be a high-speed sports car, uh, all electric. And they weren't making any of those, so he had a niche that he was going to fill. But he spent $2 million getting the permission slips from the EPA and the OSHA and the DOT and presumably a bunch of California agencies before he built the first car. He had to get $2 million worth of permission from different government agencies. Well, that's insane. But they, I mean, but they none, none guys, of the guys yeah. in my high school were going to fork over $2 million before they built the first car. They wouldn't even think about that as a fun thing to do. No, and, and the capture goes both directions because these same people get crony kickbacks. They do. 
And so it, it's, it's really a mess. It's not as simple as just they got to fulfill regulatory restrictions and whatnot, but they get all kinds of kickbacks and all kinds of gimmies. It's really a mess. And, 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 the, and, the, and the former head of, of Pfizer's research and development is currently on the FDA approving the, the Pfizer drugs and the Moderna guys, the same thing. It's what, and yeah. the people who are, are, are deciding, you know, what poisons are going to be put into your children are going to get jobs when they get out of government that will they, – and they won't even blush. They won't even be kind of, you know, ashamed. They, they, they think it's great, the revolving door. They love all of the, the corruption, and they wallow in it. It's why I call it neo-Stalinism, Jim. The globalism and the centralization and the regulatory capture. It, it, it gives off the veneer, the Potemkin village of being a market, but behind it is just, you know, a Stalinistic bullshit amped up a little bit. Right. Um, that's about it. And, and, and so one of the things that's possible is, you know, do we actually have to care about all of these rules? Supposing instead of being, you know, Tesla and we're going to market these cars to rich people, we're going to be an open source manufacturing operation and we're going to do everything on a small scale. And, you know, I've even talked about this uh, in terms of, you know, the, the hidden economy. You put all of your machine tools into uh, a couple of containers and you get several containers of parts. You show up at a warehouse. Somebody who's confident with the electricity stuff hooks you into the three-phase power. You run the factory for two or three days in this abandoned warehouse, making all of the cars, and then you shut it down deliver the cars to the customers, get their money, move on to the next uh, town. It doesn't have to be a, a, a factory that sits there. It's a factory that can run away. Yep. And that changes things. That changes the dynamic with these people who say, well, you know, the, the government, you know, is going to come collect what you owe for there being streets and roads. No, I don't know anything. And I'm going to use those streets and roads to move my factory and run away from you and keep ahead of you. I don't know that that's going to work, but, but you know, that's a possibility. And meanwhile, there's, um, you know, there's an entire industry that's possible. I found some new car companies. They're not called car companies. They're, they're called, um, the term is um, all-terrain vehicle companies. They're making all-terrain vehicles that look like, you know, dune buggies from the 60s, but they have, um, you know, they have all of the all of the equipment that a car has, and you could slap a license plate on it and make it look street legal. I wouldn't, uh, because, you know, I would believe that I was not in, uh, in traffic in the sense of trade and commerce, and I'm not required to have a, uh, I'm DOT exempt. In fact, you can get DOT exempt aluminum uh, license plates from this, uh, I think it's called freedomfromgovernment.org. You go to their website, they'll, you know, 35 bucks or something, they'll sell you some plate to put on the back of your car. Back in front if you have uh, a stupid state that requires two license plates. So they can they can see it coming and going, and get your number and decide whether you're going to be their next victim for revenue enhancement. And and that's a, and that's in a world where we think the state can hold, the center can hold. And 
I personally believe that our government is already in collapse. That's why they're using all the fear. Like, I, I don't see any FEMA camps. I don't see people being loaded on trains. I get all these fear stories from Australia and Austria and Europe and Asia. But I can't verify any of them, Jim. Any of them. What I've seen with my own eyes is a lot of bullshit and a lot of theater. Like I went by Harborview in March of 2020 almost every fucking day. And I saw no indication that anybody was panicked. They had a National Guard tent up for two weeks and they tore it down. That is my definition of the pandemic at this point. So they're using a lot of fear. And you and I both know that. So why not just go out there and start creating? Do exactly what Jim said. Start building these decentralized factory networks. Start coordinating with people. You know, start building cars using old cars. I mean, again, the question is what is limiting us right now other than fear? I don't think anything except, you know, putting the deal together and financing it, gets, getting some creative capital involved. I mean, there are millions of uh, car engines that are sitting in junkyards right now all over America. And you could go in and, you know, buy the, 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 the picky part places. The junkyards are very happy to sell you whatever you want. So you go in and you say, okay, well, I want these 20 engines and I want these 20 transmissions and you load them up on your vehicles and haul them to your place and sort out things and, you know, put together some engines. And then you need to have some chassis. Well, they have lots of, of chassis. Now, it's a junkyard, so sometimes the front of the car is going to be dented up and sometimes the back of it, very similar car, is going to be dented up. And you might need to go to two or three of these junkyards to find, uh, you know, all of the pieces you need. But they're out there. The, the, the parts are out there. Yeah. So you can assemble cars. And I wouldn't necessarily want to assemble cars that required computers. I might want to go back to timing chains and uh, distributor caps and, you know, gapping the spark plugs and, and doing a lot of this with carburetor technology because, I don't know that fuel injection is anything but a hothouse flower until we're beyond the point where we're worried about, you know, random EMPs from high-altitude nukes or from a coronal mass ejection. Um, I, I think we can have a robust level of technology and comfort. And what would be the demand for these cars? Well, uh, how about delivery vans? People can live in a delivery van. I know a bunch of people who are doing the van life. Vanarchy is a is a Telegram chat, um, and there are a bunch of agorist delivery groups um, that you know you you tell them what the package is, you know, in terms of its size and weight and where it's coming from and where it's going to, and someone signs up to the delivery. And I don't know what's in those. I do know that there are still states where it's illegal to you know grow marijuana in this country and there are still cities like Chicago where you can get a, a pretty good sum of money for an ounce of pot. And I'm sure that there are, you know, delivery vans picking up weed in Colorado and driving it to Chicago. And someone's, someone is arbitraging the price difference. That's all I'm saying. No, that's it's not me. Well, you know, we're getting pretty close to the end, but for the for the last part, I'd like to focus on some positive stuff that could be part of gearing back. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you look back to the 1880s and 90s, let's say 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, that was a period of tremendous creativity. 
Um, a lot of brilliant ideas that would shape the next hundred years came out of that period to include not just the electronics revolution, but in, eventually things like telephone and radio. And also to include like early flight, um, which happens in like the first decade of the 20th century, but it kind of connects to that period. Um, wouldn't it be reasonable to also point out that if the government collapses and we're allowed and we're just left the fuck alone, that we might in fact start solving problems again and in some ways moving forward again? Well, right. And, and there's a whole uh, area of technology that uh, was in its infancy in the 1840s and 1850s. It was actually also in its infancy in like 1783. You go back to the Montgolfier guys. They, they, they made hot air balloons and parrots, and they put, at first, animals, and then they put people on hot air balloons in these baskets, and they made big enough balloons out of the technology from the late 18th century to put lighter-than-air ships above parrots. And that was cool because you could take those out to a battlefield, and you could, you know, get some idea of where the enemy's troops are from, I don't know, a thousand feet in the sky. That was pretty cool. You could spot artillery. But in the 1840s and 50s, people began to make dirigibles. And they began using other things besides hot air for lifting gas. Hydrogen, helium, and even uh, natural gas. Methane, you know, CH4, doesn't have a lot of molecules. It's not a great lifting gas, but you can use it. People were doing that, and they were experimenting with with dirigible, which means directable. So they would have gas bags, and they would have some sort of rigid structure with rudders and elevators and a propeller driven by an engine and enough lifting gas to get that into the sky, and then they would motor around. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the guys was uh, Santos Dumont, you can get you, you can look this stuff up on on the internet while it's still around, and you know you can see all of these these early devices. Well, by the beginning of the twentieth uh, century, they were pretty sophisticated, and people were making trans-ocean voyages, not just in steamships, but also in airships. That's right. And then. And, well, Cecil Rhodes and his guy, Alfred Milner, and some other guys conspired to put European civilization into a global war. I think it was the third of these. I think there was a global war in the 1756-63 period, and I think there was a global war in um, the 1775-1785 to period. So this would have been the Third World War in Europe, but everyone calls it World War One because people don't know anything. It sounds a lot like the Star Wars series, dude. <laughs> it does, it does. You start with episode four. <laughs> but in 1914, everything changed, and certainly by 1915, um, everybody in Europe was cognizant of... German airships equipped with bombs coming over allied cities in France and Belgium and 
England and dropping bombs from the sky. And, and fighter planes were developed and advanced quickly to be able to fight back these, these you know, lighters and air bomber vessels. And the availability of helium was restricted. America had a lot of helium. Some guy in Kansas found uh, a well, and it didn't, it didn't produce natural gas, and it didn't produce oil. It produced helium. It's like, wow, okay. And the, the government was very eager to buy lots of helium, and so there was a long period of time when the Americans largely controlled that. And then the Russians found some. And during you know World War One, they were not on the side of the Germans, and so the Germans could get helium from America, and they couldn't get helium from uh, the Soviet Union after after the Russians left the the war and became the Soviets. And all during the inter-war uh, period, there were reparations and things. Several airships were delivered by the German government to the United States and to Britain and to France because airships were regarded as a desirable thing to have. And so the Germans, I think, began experimenting with other ways of, you know, getting airborne. And, and that is an interesting subject because you and I have both pondered this question. Back in 2017, Jim and I were working on some projects and we were uh, up late one night and he'd started talking about some science fiction stories he'd read and one of them had the concept of a vacuum ship. And, and the concept is relatively simple. The implementation, probably not so simple. But the idea is, what if you could build an envelope strong enough to contain a vacuum, but almost as light as the envelope containing hydrogen or helium? Again, there's no material scientist today that says they can do that. But if you could do that, if you could capture a vacuum in a lightweight envelope, you would have something way more buoyant than helium, hydrogen, or really anything we know of, correct? That's right. And, and the strength of materials is there for a lot of different materials. And there are, uh, in the science fiction novel I was thinking about, the last trumpet uh, project by Kevin McCardry, um, nanotechnology was used to make some sort of nanofiber uh, so that the, it was a rigid structure, but it was extremely lightweight and it was able to hold a vacuum. And it, it, the buoyancy principle is, it, you know, it goes back to Archimedes again, clever little Greek fellow living on the island of Sicily in the city of Syracuse. And what is, what, 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 where does the word Eureka, I'm living in Eureka Springs, where does this word Eureka come from? You know, people are like, what does that mean? It means I have found it, I have discovered yeah. or it is here. And he, he, he is known for having jumped out of the bathtub and run naked into the palace saying, Eureka, Eureka. Why did he do that? Well, because he had been tasked by the king of Syracuse to prove whether or not the jeweler who had gotten so much gold and so much silver had made a crown and returned all of the scraps of gold and silver. And, you know, did, did, did he return as much as he was, you know, he was paid to make the crown. But then did he steal some of the gold and some of the silver? And this is, this is, turns out to be a complicated task. But by using the displacement method, Archimedes was able to discover that there was, in fact, less total material returned 
the, the finished crown and the scraps weighed less than the material that had been provided to the jeweler, and so the jeweler was executed. Sad story. But a thief was captured, so, you know, happy ending. I don't know. My point is is, is that, um, you know, buoyancy is buoyancy. And if you take a steel ship and it has air inside of it, it will float on the surface of the sea. But it's made out of steel. It'll sink. Well, you know, if, if the buoyancy goes awry, if you got have a leaky ship, it will. So uh, shall we talk about the bell? Well, yeah, we can, but the key idea here is what's called like net density, right? Like if yes. you, you can build a ship out of steel, but the entire thing from the perspective of the universe has to be thought of as having a certain mass and a certain density. And even though it may only have air inside, that air represents part of the structure of the material. It creates that relative density where it's much less dense than water, even though steel's quite heavy. Um, it's how right, and the same thing works with lighter-than-air ships. Yeah. If, if, if the balloon, if the envelope holds inside of it a, a lifting gas that is lighter than air, then the net weight of the balloon plus its gondola being less than you know, the surrounding air, it will rise up into the sky. That's right. And if you want to move around, you put a propeller on it or you put a jet engine on it, and you can zoom around the sky in your dirigible. And people do this. People have been doing this for over 100 years now. Close to 150. So during World War II, as you well know, Jim, the Germans did a lot of very high-tech research. And, and to this day, maybe much of it is still unknown to the American public. You know, there was Operation Paperclip after the war. We got our German Nazi scientists. The Russians got theirs. But the, at the end of the day... It's possible that much of what they did is still secret to this day, don't you think? Well, some of it is, and, and, and there are uh, people who have done research. Um, we used to call them conspiracy theorists, but there's really no reason to be rude. Um, and, and there are, there are you know, written records from Germany that, that talk about some of these experiments, and one of them was this, this strange thing that people thought might be an anti-gravity experiment called the Bell. Yep. That's right. And one, one of the things that people, uh, you know, one of the reasons they think it's an anti-gravity experiment is that they got the thing to float, but it was made out of metal. <laughs> and what if it wasn't, uh, what if it wasn't an anti-gravity experiment? What if they were using uh, electromagnetic systems to create a vacuum inside this bell? And uh, it was simply a lighter-than-air experiment. It, it floated. Uh, they had it chained down so that it wouldn't float away. But, you know, what if you didn't use a rigid structure, you know, like an aluminum shell? What if you used a gas bag made out of Kevlar or something like it that's very lightweight and thin? And how would you keep that rigid? How would you keep the vacuum from simply making that into a flat bag. Right, because what it ends up being is a vacuum-sealed bag. If you don't have structure internal, that's what happens. Right. Um, so when you talked about this, for the last couple of years, I was obsessing on it. And one thing a lot of people may not know, but during World War One and after World War One, there was a kind of revolution in aerospace engineering. 
And one of the features of this revolution was taking the external structures on like biplanes. They had they had biplanes and they had structures between the between the wings that gave the plane structure. But there were, I believe it was the French, but French engineers during the 20s and 30s figured out a way to take that structure and put it inside the wing. And by doing that, they could increase the performance of the plane, you know, reduce its drag, but it would still have the strength and rigidity it needed to fly. Well, a lot of people may not realize this, but magnetic fields can be used to create structure. Um, it's not easy. I mean, I think if you, would, you were to ask a, a person that works with plasmas in fusion research, they would tell you it's extremely difficult, but it's not impossible. So what if you could take that Kevlar bag that Jim described and weave into it a series of magnets and then using those magnets and probably you know, some behaviors like pulsating behaviors that have to be synchronized, what if you could create a structure inside the bag just purely of magnetic fields that gave the bag the strength to hold the vacuum? Then you would have a lighter-than-air ship without a rigid structure. That's right. And you can make it as big as you want it. In fact, some of these things that people have reported seeing, like these, these, these giant uh, shapes in the sky, uh, might not be UFOs in that sense. I mean, they're unidentified flying objects, but they might not be space alien objects. They might just be giant airships using some sort of pulsed magnetic field technology to create the rigidity they need to stay in the air. And then when they when they need to disappear, you know, you take all of the uh, fields away and the vacuum collapses underneath atmospheric pressure and your bag disappears very quickly. So, you know, it accounts for things that people have been mystified by. And I don't know if that's the explanation for any of the things that have been seen, but I do know that this is a fascinating area of technological development. And it gets us back to one of the great undeveloped frontiers of human activity, which is the you know, the condominium at 100,000 feet. Which, you know, the, the question is, is, here's the question. If space is a frontier, at this point in human history, why aren't we traveling into that frontier the way that people took off throughout all periods of history towards some new frontier? It, and it isn't just an American phenomenon. You know, we mentioned um, Archimedes. But what people don't understand is that there weren't a lot of Greeks on Sicily to begin with. But there was a period in Greek history, Jim, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, prior to and around the Peloponnesian War, where Greeks did go to Sicily to um, basically to be, you know, pioneers, so to speak, to create colonies. That's correct, right? Yes, yes. They, they settled in all kinds of places around the Mediterranean basin, and they got a taste for it. And after they were able to uh, defeat the Persians invading Greece on a couple of occasions. Marathon and Thermopylae are the two key battles in those successive waves of Persian invasion. Then Alexander got together all of the Greek city-states and said, hey, why don't we you know, go conquer the world? And he was you know, young and dumb and full of cum and, and went out. By the age of 23, had conquered the known world. He was sending armies into provinces of India when he I don't know. I gather he died of some sort of venereal disease. Or Conquered the known hookers. He, he, and, and he had the whole game. Yeah, you know? he had the whole game. 
No, but the, I mean, right now. The 383 BC version of cocaine, whatever that was. Exactly. But Jim, right now, um, 2,500 years later, not quite 2,400 years later, here we are on planet Earth. And, and and again, I think I told you a story about my dad. You know, when he got out of World War II, he'd read Popular Mechanics and it'd be, oh, we'll all be doing jets and stuff in a few years. But none of that really ever happened. It was mostly polishing candles, you know. Here we are in 2022, and I think back to the things that I was told. And yeah, 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 you got your mobile device, tracking device, and I don't think that's accidental that you get that technology. But the technology that would really liberate us, that would get us out of our sofas and seats and away from the screens, the technology that would allow us to take risks, and yeah, take huge risks, but also have big opportunities, the technology of space travel seems woefully inadequate. People are celebrating the Blue Horizon thing, but Blue Horizon barely made it to the same spot that Scott Shepard reached in 19, what, 1961? Something like that. Yeah, it's crazy, dude. It's, it's, it's almost as if, and again, if we can just stop for a second, it's like there's different kinds of technology in this not-so-free society. There's the secret technology that I do think the government steals and holds on to if it can, although that's not really a winning strategy because you can't keep people from learning things. So there might be a lot of very secret technology. But then there's the controlled technology, the own technology. And frankly, aerospace represents part of that. It's not like Jim, it's not like you and I could ever get permission to start traveling into space. And believe me, folks, Jim has his own story about trying to do it the free market, old-fashioned American way, and what happens to you. And so it is messed up that we're in 2022, and we're nowhere near um, really pioneering the solar system, let alone the galaxy. That's right. And even just, I mean, we, we talked about how complicated it would be to start a new car company and how many millions of dollars you'd have to spend just, just to put the first car out on the street. Um, and that, you know, Elon Musk, you know, illustrated that for us recently. Uh, what about having a, a new aircraft company? Boeing essentially owns all of the civilian, you know, airliner industry in this country. And I think Airbus is the other one in the world. Uh, who else is making airliners? I don't know. Uh, some uh, Brazilian company, I think, makes a, uh, uh, a turboprop. Uh, for little puddle jumps from one place to another. But there are not a lot of, of companies making airliners. Why is that? It's not because there aren't people who know about you know aerodynamics and lift and structures. It's because the governments of the world don't want a lot of people making tiny little cars. We were promised in the Boys Life magazine and in popular science and popular mechanics all through the 40s, 50s, and 60s that we would be seeing air cars any day now in there. Here's a design for one with wings. Here's a design. Mahler had a design in 1979 for ducted fans that would lift, you know, a couple of people and uh, you know, fly around the sky at 70 miles an hour. And it's a lot less accidents if you get away from everybody else, which you can do in the sky. There are a lot uh, fewer, you know, mid-air collisions than there are ground collisions. There are because more options for safety, believe it or you not. Have, you have six directions to move, right? You can go up, down, left, right, forward, backward. You know, you, you can change your direction of travel in a lot of different places, and so there's much more freedom in the sky. 
and there's fewer people per unit of, of volume. And you're not restricted to a lane. And one of the problems on the highway is you travel along at, at 70 miles an hour, and the, 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 the snowplow, maybe you turn at that, uh, you know, suddenly there's a, there's a, there's a turnaround uh, slot, you know, on the left, and you didn't notice it. And suddenly you're driving 70 miles an hour on glades. And good luck staying in control at that moment. I've been in that situation up in South Dakota. Um, you have this situation where, you know, a truck gets on the road and the people behind him react in the wrong way and they crash into one another. And suddenly, you know, you've got a pile up and everybody's still coming down the highway at 80 miles an hour. And they all have to stop. They have to slam on their brakes. And you get a pile up. Well, you don't get that in the sky. You might have a mid-air collision between two vehicles, but you're not going to have a pileup because everybody's not forced to stay in the same pattern. It's crazy. You know, you look at you look at um, the second Back to the Future movie, and they actually have these stupid air cars all traveling in lanes in the sky with, with, with signal lights in the sky. Yeah. It's, it's zany. Yeah, obviously, it's meant to be funny. But, you know... That's that. That's the freedom of motion, and and from being in the sky at twenty miles, that's where you would want to launch from. You're above, you know, even one mile. You're above about half the atmosphere. Uh, why aren't we launching our rockets from the mountains? Well, you know, it's complicated. Well, here's uh, here's a what if, and this is the simple what if related to the, the the sort of the theme of this conversation we've been having about airships. What if they figured out after World War II that there was a really cheap trick that could get everybody to space? They just don't want people to know. What if, in fact, they did figure out how to make a vacuum ship work, that the Nazis did, and that they were very close to, like, like maybe even building lots of them, and then the war ended? Because i got to say, as you well know, Jim, at 20 miles, you're in a near vacuum. So if you wanted to optimize a rocket engine, you could optimize it for the vacuum, and you would never have to have the multi-stage nonsense to basically push through a lot of thick atmosphere, if we're being honest about it. It's like that number you quoted me once. I think it was like half the energy to go to the moon was used in the first 10,000 feet. Something like that. I, I think that's right. And you can look that up. The Saturn V rocket used an enormous amount of oxygen and kerosene on that first stage. And that first stage didn't get out of the atmosphere. It was discarded. And the second stage lit while they were still in the atmosphere. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a huge amount of energy just to get out of the atmosphere, and the atmosphere is useful. You have the possibility of buoyancy. Why Why aren't we floating everything up to 20 miles? It doesn't take very much energy. It sounds dumb, a, doesn't it? Sound dumb on a certain level? It, it, it sounds actually, yeah, counterproductive and stupid to do it this way. And you can say that SpaceX and Blue uh, Blue Origin are really clever companies run by really clever guys. Sure, and they've got a lot of neat technology. I, I grant you. But what are they really doing? They're they're doing exactly what the uh, the Soviets did in the fifties and sixties. They're making the same rocket engine over and over and over again, and they're you know strapping a bunch of them together to make a bigger and bigger Falcon or a bigger and bigger whatever the Blue Origin New Shepard, whatever. Um, they, they're making these, 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 these vehicles out of identical engines so that they get some, you know, uh, experience building, you know, the same engine over and over again. They know a lot about how it runs, and they also, you know, have uh, standardized parts, uh, you know, uh, all, 
all of the advantages of assembly line production. So it's cool, but at the same time, you know, it seems dizzyingly stupid not to float everything up to 20 miles, have an operations base up there, or maybe, you know, uh, 11 miles, however high the, the thermoposits, because keeping your operations base in the thermopause would be uh, fuel efficient. But you have an operation space up there above most of the atmosphere, and then you launch from there. Uh, I don't know. It, it does seem dizzyingly stupid, and it does seem like we can't possibly be the first people to think of all this. Well, okay, you know, uh, you're, you know a lot of people in this business. You mentioned JP Aerospace from time to time, but there's another company that has a dirigible concept that's like a big flying wing, and I forget the name of those guys. Um, well, I just got a, uh, a competition review from Avialto. Avialto, yeah, Avialto, I think is the one I'm thinking of. Is they have a big flying wing that they believe they can use to launch um, satellites, don't they? No, that's not quite what they're doing. And they've switched to a more uh, uh, cigar-shaped uh, dirigible uh, for various reasons. But uh, Avialto is planning on putting up uh, pseudo satellites and basically putting a communications platform in the trope and in, in the thermopause okay, at, okay, at, okay. at the top of uh, uh, of the uh, troposphere right. just below the stratosphere and it, so you know it's it, it's exactly like having satellite transponders the whole bent pipe concept in terms of the communications tech but it's um it's 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 station keeping let's say above indonesia well, Indonesia has a lot of mountains and a lot of places where it's really hard to get fiber optic cables because it's a long way from any place else. Um, and in these remote mountain areas, the, the, having satellite communications is difficult because you, you look towards the horizon where the satellites would be, and there's a mountain in the way. Yeah. You can't point at geosynchronous as easily in every place on Earth. Um, and so you have a... a an airship station keeping up in the uh, in the thermopause, and that's where you point your satellite, uh, your antenna, and you have much less power because you're not going out to twenty two thousand five hundred nautical miles with your signal. You're only going out eleven miles, um, and 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 so uh, yes, and, and they station keep for uh, three or four months, and then they they come back and, and recharge their batteries, swap out electronics for the more you know advanced electronics because you know. Uh, Gordon's law. Is it Gordon? Um, it's Moore's law. But, Moore's law. But, yeah, yeah. So Gordon, Gordon Gordon's Moore, law is Gordon's, you know, fish sticks law. If you eat too many, you're going to get sick. <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, well, the thing and is, we though, all ran into trouble with South Park finding out that we like fish sticks. Yes. Well, no. The point I was getting at is that, if, and again, this is conspiracy theory. This is not something I can prove. This is conjecture. And before I go too much further, there's an author by the name of Joseph P. Farrell who's written several books on secret Nazi programs, including the Glocka, the Bell, the Bell Project. So, if you're interested in going deeper into that, Joseph P. Farrell. That's F A R R E L L. He's got books on Amazon. You can look him up. I've I've read a couple of his books. He's a really good historian, and he does a lot of good thought and logical thought as a historian. So I, he's not. He, he talked about uh, high flux uh, radiation weapons on the Eastern Front, didn't he? Yeah, he also talked about the use of fuel air bombs. 
Yeah, on also on the Eastern Front, and and there's reason to believe that in October of 1944, the Nazis might have tested a, an, an atomic weapon in the Baltic, um, and there's also reason to believe that some of the yellow cake we used, potentially some of the yellow cake we used uh, for for li- for a uh, little boy for the uranium device we dropped on Hiroshima might have come from the Nazis again this is stuff you guys got to do your own research he's written a lot on this um but here's the question you remember the the flying wing incident and i think it was over phoenix uh the phoenix lights but back in the 1990s i think it was 96 or 97 could have been 95 i, I remember the stories that came out of that yeah and again i don't know if it really happened but if you could imagine a convertible vacuum ship, a vacuum ship that takes on one shape to be buoyant and takes on potentially another shape for higher speeds, that could very well have been a giant vacuum ship that they could have seen. I mean, it's described in such a way as being so big that it's hard to imagine it being anything other than that or anti-gravity. And, you know, again, I'm not saying that's what's going on, but it is curious, as Jim and I would point out, that by the time you get to the end of World War II, development on lighter-than-air ships is almost brought to a total halt. Yep. That's weird, isn't it? It is. It is weird. I mean, after the Hindenburg, the German high command, the the German Air Force guy, uh, Goering, uh, scrapped all of the remaining Zeppelins in Germany. You know, and why would you do that? I don't know. I didn't do it. Well, the thing is, but how it many... it does seem like they're hiding something. Yeah, because here's the thing, and this is, this is about fear. Let's talk about fear for a second, because one of the statistics I read is that during the, the period of early discovery and colonization, let's say the 16th and 17th century, at least half the people involved were dead within a few years. Like, within five to ten years, half the people that would go on these trips would be dead. And yet, we never stopped, did we? No, and, and you know, voyages of discovery, uh, the Portuguese were doing them in the 1400s, right? Yes. Uh, the early 1400s. But I'm thinking about, I'm were. just talking about the New World stuff. But yeah, it would probably have been worse back then. The point is... Well, and, 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 and finding the coast of Africa and finding the path to India around the Cape of uh, Good Hope, uh, you know, that was that was really challenging in 1405, 1410, 1420. Those 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 ships were sent out, and a lot of them didn't come back. And, and the, yeah, the point is, you have the Hindenburg incident, and it's amped up as like one of the worst disasters of all time. But if you take that and compare it to all the nautical disasters, I mean, going back to the beginning, which would be so far ago in the thousands of years, we wouldn't even know of it, but. Ever since the beginning of humans going on the water, people have drowned and died. And it's something that was accepted. If you go on the water, you could drown or die. If you go on the road today with your automobile, there's a probability you could die. Tens of thousands of Americans die on American roads every year from automobile crashes. But you have this one incident with the Hindenburg, and then that's all people think about. I don't think that's accidental, do you, Jim? Well, it certainly doesn't seem that way. And when you combine that with what we know from Anthony Sutton's books about Wall Street and the rise of Hitler, Wall Street and the rise of the Bolsheviks, you get a sense that these same people are controlling, you know, with their financial 
uh, wealth. They're, they're controlling a lot of these supposed, uh, you know, narratives, I would describe them as. The narrative of Hitler's aggressive and conquering Europe, the narrative that the Soviets want to take over the world, everything from 1910 onward, from the development of the Federal Reserve on Jekyll Island, from that time onward, you have to wonder what you're being told. It's not the truth. And one of the things we know about, uh, even further back in the past, and it was, what, 1898, when the USS Maine blows up in Havana Harbor, and the Spanish Empire is regarded as the you know, perpetrators of a great crime against Americans. Well, what if the USS Maine just you know, had a, a coal bin explosion or some other sort of explosion and the magazine? But Hearst didn't want that. Hearst, Hearst newspapers kept the fear up and kept saying that, you know, there are Spanish spies everywhere and there are Spanish spies in New York Harbor and they're going to blow up some more ships and we got to go to war with Spain. And they got their war. Yeah. And Teddy Roosevelt got to charge up San Juan Hill and capture, I don't know, it was Puerto Rico or Cuba or whatever they captured. They captured the Spanish Empire and then the Americans had an empire. And that's part of a narrative that was fed to the American people and fed to the world about, you know, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and we're freeing the Filipinos from Spanish servitude and then, oh, Roosevelt says that they're not capable of governing themselves, so we're going to have to govern them for a while. Well, I mean, the reality is by the time you get to 1890, the Spanish Empire is already a couple centuries in decline. So it's, it it's, it's it pretty is. much. It, it was a hollow shell. It was pretty easy to knock over. And then when you get to 1941, you have all of this technology for capturing German and Japanese. Uh, all of their codes were broken. And Churchill and Roosevelt knew exactly what was happening with the Japanese Navy all over the Pacific. They didn't keep radio silence in 1941. They were tracked across the Pacific. All of these records exist now and have been exposed by Robert Stennett and by others. And uh, nobody, nobody warned the Filipino people that they were about to be invaded. Nobody told MacArthur how many uh, you know, enemy vessels to expect. And they didn't prepare the Philippines, and they didn't pair, prepare Malaysia or Singapore, and they didn't, they didn't warn their Dutch allies, and the Dutch are still pissed about this, let me tell you. The, the, the island of Batavia was invested by the Japanese and, 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 and conquered. And, and you know, Indonesia became a, a Japanese uh, outpost for a long time. It had a lot of oil and rubber and other desirable things, but, you know, here we are. It's, 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 it's a narrative that we've been fed. The things that people think of as world history from the 1890s to today, so over 120 years, were put together by people who decided on behalf of everyone else and made these events happen. And... 55 million people died in combat during the 20th century. 262 million were killed in genocides by their own governments in the 20th century. And, you know, other people profited from all of that. 
And that's monstrous. That's that's where we are. That's where we've been. And that's you know, I think that's part of that dark energy that that we talked about in the last uh, discussion. Well, it is. It's a question of you know, it's one of those things. And I don't want to go too far off the deep end in different directions, but that dark energy could also be just called consequences. And they and eventually, even if you delay them, they come back to haunt you. It will happen. It, it's just it's just a question of when. Um, right. You cannot put, you know, vaccination stuff. You can't put poisons into millions and millions of people's arms, even if it's just saline solution in every single case, which I don't think it is. But, you know, just jabbing that many people with saline solutions, there will be accidents. There will be, you know, embolisms. There will be mistakes. People will die. And it seems monstrous to to be doing that over the fear that it's been uh, trumped up uh, over what seems to be a bad cold that people get. I, I, now, think, I had it. I had, yeah. In February of 2020, I'm pretty sure I had it. Well, and yeah. it was a very, very bad cold. And I, I was you know, weakened for, yeah. for weeks. But I got over it, and well, I didn't die. Yeah, and lots of people didn't die. Yeah, whatever whatever people think it was, it wasn't a pandemic. That's one thing a rational person could say. If we de- were to define an epidemic or a pandemic, none of what it was matches it. So whatever it was, who the hell knows? But it was a um, psyop. It was for sure a psyop. Yeah. This 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 week, the CDC has announced that the only people who really died had four or more co- comorbidities. They were old. They were obese. They had you know heart disease, and yeah, the, the stress from this thing killed them. But it didn't kill children. And yet they're shooting children's arms with this stuff and saying you have everyone over five years old has to have a vaccine passport to get fed in a restaurant in New York. What the hell is that? Well, you know, another thing that happened early on is in in March and April of 2020, all these Twitter nurses and Twitter doctors were posting these horrible pictures of people with horrible illnesses in the hospital. But I can tell you, having worked in a hospital prior to 2020, American hospitals killed hundreds of thousands of people a year because they couldn't keep their hospitals clean. Okay? And people got weird fungal infections and weird bacterial infections. In fact, prior to all this Wuhan nonsense, if you'd asked me, Dan, where would you find the most dangerous microorganisms on planet Earth? I'd said any random fucking American hospital. Scrape the fucking wall. Iatrogenic illness, right? The, the doctor and hospital caused diseases, killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. I think the only other major cause of death would be all of the tobacco-related deaths, which was maybe 400,000, and then iatrogenic was like 200, 250,000 in, in a lot of years. So the, yeah, co- the it's, COVID it's, it's a leading cause of death, yeah. and so all of these all of these uh, TikTok videos of the dancing nurses, you know, there's some commie propaganda. Well, yeah. I mean, if you take basically the flu and you take hospital-acquired infection and you put them together, you have the COVID. And all you have to have at that point is human psychology willing to accept a lot of, you know, willing to accept a lot of garbage. And people were primed for it. They were primed for it. They were given a lot of pop culture, a lot of, you know, various media sources, a lot of germophobia. They were ready. For, to be manipulated, and they got manipulated, and that's where we're at. And and no matter what happens next, and I think I said this to you yesterday, Jim, 
this psyop has killed millions of people. So it's not yeah. something where if all of a sudden they went, well, Dan, we can just wake up tomorrow and just forgive each other. No, there are people that have to pay. We're, we're at the point where there are people that have to pay, and in my opinion, they're either going to pay on the physical land itself of the planet Earth, or or ultimately it's going to be God's punishment. But ultimately, dude, I don't I don't think we get to pretend it didn't happen. Is my point? Absolutely. And for the last twenty years, I have seen hand sanitizer sales because there's suddenly after the turn of the century. There were hand sanitizer stations all over these hospitals. And does, does hand sanitization actually change the disease transmission? Well, in a hospital, not much. Maybe some in a surgery ward. But there's so much stuff in the air filters and all over these hospitals that, and, and, and these rooms where one person has a terrible illness that's maybe even respiratory, and then is it is it sufficiently clean before the next patient is shoved in there? No. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff. Even you, you worked on keeping track of the records of, of, of this, and they weren't they were fudging the records. They weren't paying any attention to the to the uh, you know the disease vectors of of who was in each room. Oh, I, I would put it very simply. In the year 2010, at Harborview Medical Center. Microsoft's reputation was a higher priority than patient safety. That's how I would think. Yeah. yeah. And what's that? That's, you know, that's a billionaire, Bill Gates, who got a $100 billion contact tracing contract for his new company in October of 2019 for a pandemic that had not yet been announced to the world but was probably in the planning stages. And he is on record as wanting to have billions of human beings forcibly sterilized and having the population reduced dramatically because he's, well, you know, crazy. And that same, but guys, this is really critical because this is how much of a mindfuck this all is. That same motherfucker and the Bill and, Ma Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that same crooked foundation, are involved in new Norman Borlaug-style Green Revolution agricultural technologies to feed the world. So, so they're kind of talking through both sides, both sides of their mouth, aren't they, Jim? In terms of this well, issue, I think they're trying to control everything. They yeah. want to control the food supply, and I don't think they want to feed the world unless they want to force everybody to eat the bugs. They've been talking about that in a lot of these places and publications. I, I really don't understand what they're doing, but it does seem like they're getting ready for making the world into a very different place. And I got news. There's a prior owner who doesn't have that in mind. And God made the earth to be occupied and he made mankind to occupy it. And he did not make us to be slaves to some demons. Um, so get right with God and pray because we're in a lot of trouble. Well, Jim, do you have anything else you want to talk about with respect to gearing back or any of these other subjects before we go? Well, I, I, I just like to keep uh, up on current events. And, you know, it seems to me that, that a lot of what we're being fed now is a whole new narrative about how maybe it's all Fauci's fault or maybe all of this or that. 
And one of the uh, one of the groups that's come out with uh, some evidence against you know Fauci and in favor of ivermectin uh, is this Project Veritas outfit, Veritas. I don't know what, however you say that in Latin. And uh, for whatever reason, they just announced and released a video on YouTube that has not been taken down. Last I looked. And uh, it's all about how the vaccines are poisons and ivermectin worked and should have been used from the moment that it was found to be working. And uh, this is a guy, James O'Keefe, who runs Project Veritas, Veritas, was, you know, his home was invaded by the FBI because he had the diary of Ashley Biden. But now he has national security stuff, allegedly from a, you know, a top secret hard drive. I don't know how he got access and he's got you know DARPA publications I don't know how he got access and he's got an inspector general report from some major in the army and I don't know how he got access but he has all of these things and he's talking about them and they haven't raided his offices with the FBI because I guess because it's not actually Biden's diary I, I have to say that when, he, when you look at the PSYOP you're looking at a lot of mental games and part of it I think is to simply make people feel uncertainty and anxiety and madness that's and, the point of science and to paralyze them to keep them from doing anything useful right because they don't know what to do they don't know they don't understand how the world is it doesn't make sense anymore and so they are you know, either they are paralyzed or worse, they are so distraught by this dysfunctional situation they find themselves in that they kill themselves because they can't take it anymore. And so I would, again, you know, encourage people to um, find some time to stay calm and read the Bible and listen to that inner voice, listen to God speaking to you, and remember that God wins. You know, all of the documentation is very clear. The devil does not win this conflict or any other conflict. Um, and so as long as you keep faithful and focus on, you know, just do what you need to do and let God handle the rest. And, and I would, you know, I think that's, that's really good advice. I would also add that even though talking about collapse can be scary, one of the things we should all keep in mind is that there is the possibility on the other side that we might live in one of the freest times that we've seen in our lifetimes. Like, like yeah, it'll be hard, it'll be difficult, there'll be hunger, there'll be thirst, there'll be stress, but we might have a chance at freedom again. That's right, and there have been periods of thousands of years. If we look in the archaeological record, they've they've they found a, a, a little community that was sixteen thousand five hundred years ago around Gobekli Tepe. There are a bunch of communities that are eleven and twelve thousand years old, and there's no evidence of central government. There's no evidence of warfare. There's a, a long period of peace and prosperity and freedom, and we can look forward to that. Well, Jim, um, I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope you have a great rest of your Wednesday. Thank you. And for all the listeners out there, um, you know, try to, try to stay as positive as you can. Try to be as flexible as you can. 
These are strange and treacherous times, but we have to remember that God is in charge, not the devil. And ultimately, the Lord's justice will will win the day. I think that's a fair statement. God bless you, Dad. God bless you too, Jim. Talk to you Bye. later.